Well, thank you very much for coming this morning to hear God's Word. We are continuing our series in the book of Mark. The series is called Incredible. Incredible. And as we continue the series, today we're going to dive into Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14. So please be turning there. And by the way, it's really important that you read these words for yourself. So if you don't have a Bible available to you right now, we've got some on the table right back there. I invite you to get up and go get one. And if you don't own one, that's a gift for you. And if you have a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 14. Beginning in Mark chapter 14 and going through Mark chapter 15, Mark is now going to describe for us Christ's betrayal, Christ's arrest, Christ's trial, and Christ's crucifixion. What is known as Christ's passion from the Latin word for suffer. Now, before we read Mark chapter 14, verses 1 to 11, I need to remind you of a literary device that Mark uses in this text to make his point. And God is the one who inspired this literary device. And the device that I'm talking about is called a Markin sandwich. A Markin sandwich. Not a Cuban sandwich, but a Markin sandwich. What's a Markin sandwich, you ask? Here's what it is. It's where Mark takes two similar ideas and puts one on top as the piece of bread on top and one underneath as the piece of bread underneath. And then those two similar ideas contrast pretty significantly with the meat, the main point that he puts in the middle. So that's a Markin sandwich and it's been done many, many times in the book of Mark and it's being done here in this chapter in this section that we are reading. So as we read the text, I want to ask you to see if you can identify the Markin sandwich. What is that main point? What is the meat that's stuffed between the two contrasting points, similar contrasting points as the two pieces of bread on the top and the bottom? So let's pray first before we read it and ask God to reveal to us his word, his way. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you would please give us grace. Lord, I, I just pray that you would focus us. Lord, I pray that with our, with our minds and our humanity, we're easily distracted. I know I am. And I pray that you would help me to focus, help my friends to focus. Most importantly, your spirit would give life to dead hearts if there are any unbelievers here this morning. That they would repent and believe in Jesus as they hear the gospel. But Lord, for those of us who know you, you would give us understanding by your spirit of your word. And a focus that's really supernatural. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark chapter 14, verse 1. Now it was two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper... As he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of an ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like this? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me, for you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do for them. 
but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. Did you find the Markin sandwich? The two pieces of bread on either side are verses 1 and 2, where the chief priests and the scribes plot to arrest and kill Jesus. And the The piece of bread on the bottom are verses 10 and 11, where Judas betrays Jesus to them. The meat of the sandwich, that which God wants us to focus on, are verses 3 through 9, where we see this precious woman anointing Jesus for burial. This is the part that God wants us to take note of. He is highlighting highlighting the centerpiece by contrasting it with those pieces on either end. The contrast couldn't be greater between the chief priests and the scribes. Look at verses 1 and 2. They are seeking to arrest Jesus and kill Jesus. Do you see that? As a matter of fact, their plot is, we've got to do it after the feast of Passover and unleavened bread. Because if we do it during the feast, he's so popular, if we do it publicly, there'll be a riot. And if there's a riot, the Romans will come down on us. So you've got to remember that Jerusalem now is overflowing with pilgrims. Two, three, four times the number of people that normally live in Jerusalem have come there for the highest feast of all of the Jewish holiday, Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Imagine 4th of July, Christmas, Easter, and Cinco de Mayo, all wrapped into one. Just threw in Cinco de Mayo as an ad on there. All the holidays you can think of. That's what Passover was for Israel. It was their independence day. It was the day that they celebrated and that they had been celebrating for 1,400 years. For it was 1,400 years earlier that God delivered Israel out of the bondage of Egypt through what's called the Exodus and delivered them through the desert and delivered them into the promised land. And on the night of their deliverance, when God defeated Israel, Pharaoh, the strongest king on earth, on that night, he told all of the Jews, all of Israel, take a lamb, slaughter that lamb, take the blood of that lamb, put it on the doorpost of your home, because tonight I'm going to bring my judgment, what was called the death angel, into Egypt, and I'm going to kill the firstborn male of every Egyptian. Everybody whose house does not have that blood over the doorpost, the firstborn of that house will be killed. And in effect, that's what happened. They slaughtered the Passover lamb, and they put the blood on the doorpost. And that night, the angel came through and killed the firstborn male of everyone whose doorpost didn't have that blood. But it passed over the homes of the Jews who had the blood of the Passover lamb. That's what they were celebrating. And God said, every year you celebrate that. Every year. And they had done it for 1,400 years. And here is 1,401. And so they're saying, let's arrest and kill Jesus after this big ceremony. Let's get all the people out of town because the Romans are on high alert. They got the SWAT teams. They got the mobile command centers on Miami Beach because it's Memorial Day weekend uh, freaking out time. And they're going to arrest us quick. So let's just not do it then. Let's do it after. 
God had other plans. Because in God's timetable, he said, no, we're going to do it right before. Because Jesus is the Passover lamb. They didn't get that. They didn't get that. And now sandwiched in between that conspiracy against Jesus, jump down to verses 10 and 11. Verses 10 and 11, we find Judas, who provides by God's will, though God did not excuse Judas' sin, the very vehicle by which these scribes and chief priests can go ahead and arrest and kill Jesus before the Passover instead of waiting till after. Because he says, I'm going to go betray Jesus to them. And in fact, he went and said, I'll deliver him to you. And if you read it, sadly, they they were glad. Verse 11, and when they heard it, they were glad. And they promised to give him some money. We know they gave him 30 pieces of silver. Now, sandwiched in between the jealous, murderous unbelief of the scribes and, and, and the chief priests and the selfish treachery of Judas is the selfless devotion of this unnamed woman expressed by her extravagant anointing of Jesus for burial. And that extravagant anointing of Jesus for burial is intended to focus our eyes not on her because she is unnamed. You know, some scholars will tell you that she's probably Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. You know, Lazarus was raised from the dead. But you know what? In this text... It says unnamed woman. You know why? Because God doesn't want us to focus on her. He wants us to focus on Jesus. Her extravagant anointing of Jesus points to Christ's extravagant love for us. Her extravagant anointing of Jesus points to Christ's extravagant love for us. So let's look at his extravagant love for us. Point one. Christ's extravagant love is costly. Christ's extravagant love is costly. Let me set up the scene for you. It's a few days before his death. It's a few days before Passover. And so Jesus has been going into Jerusalem during this week, the week we call Passion Week. And he's been going there to confront the authorities. He's been going in there to judge the temple. He's been going in there uh, to do various things. And so every day he leaves Jerusalem because it's kind of like going to a Gator game in Gainesville. You can't find a hotel room. So he, he, this is sort of the Airbnb, okay? So he gets his little Airbnb and he's got to stay outside of Jerusalem because there's no hotel rooms in Jerusalem. And he stays in a place called Bethany, if you see that in verse 3. And while he was at Bethany, this is his base camp. But you know what I love about this base camp in Bethany, as I set the story up for you? Look at whose house he's in. Look at it in your text. Simon the leper. Whoa, hang on a second. <laughs> I mean, we've got people that won't even shake my hand if I have a cold, because they're afraid of getting my cold. Uh, like, if you have leprosy back then, that was a death sentence. If you were a leper, you were consigned to being quarantined. What in the world are they doing staying at Simon the leper's house? I'll tell you what they were doing staying there. Jesus had healed Simon. So actually, more accurately, it would have been Simon the former leper. I love that. What a picture of what he's about to do for us, healing us of our disease of sin. So they're at Simon the leper's house, and the text tells us that they're reclining at table. So most likely, the tradition then was that the men would all gather together. They would recline at table. Literally, they'd be sitting on the ground, reclining at table. They would be eating. No women would be there. And so out of nowhere, the door burst open 
And this unnamed woman runs in. She comes in. And what she does is amazing. She has this beautiful alabaster flask. And she breaks it, rendering it totally useless. And then she takes all of the ointment of pure nard from that alabaster flask and pours it on the head of Jesus. And it runs down the head of Jesus. And it says in verse 4 that that when she did this, there were some there who said to themselves indignantly and probably said it out loud, Hey, why was the ointment wasted like that? You see it there in verse 4? Verse 5, for this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. This woman poured out one year's worth of salary on Jesus. A denarii was roughly what a, a person earned for one day's work in Israel in the first century. This was more than 300 denarii. This woman took this alabaster flask, broke it, rendered it useless, and poured out, I mean, what do you make in a year? Let's just say $50,000 worth, or 60000 or 70000 Fill in the blank. It is a lot of money. And back then, women didn't have the opportunity to earn that kind of money. So most likely, what this woman had in her hands was a family heirloom, this beautiful alabaster flask, because what was in it was worth a lot of money. So it was beautiful. And she comes in in this beautiful beautiful flask, and she smashes it and breaks it and takes this incredible amount of money's worth of pure nard and pours it over Jesus' head. And people were like, criticizing her as a matter of fact if you look at the end of uh uh, verse five it says they scolded her do you see that verse six and they scolded her sorry the last part of verse five why are you wasting this well let's ask this question first why did she do this why did she take something so precious worth so much why would she do this and here's why i believe she did this Because by God's grace, she saw the worth of the one whom she was anointing. She saw that he was the son of God, again, by God's grace. God opened her eyes to see this one is worth it all. This is God incarnate. She may not have understood it like we do today, but this is Messiah. This is the one. Today we can say this is God in the flesh. What a contrast, church. These scribes and chief priests, they're offering Judas 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. And Judas is willing to do it for 30. I'll take 30. Do you know what 30 pieces of silver was worth back then? It was the price, it was the cost of a common slave who had been accidentally gored by an ox. What a contrast. What a sandwich. Yeah, the two pieces of bread on either side did not value Jesus. And the meat in the middle was a woman who saw the inestimable worth of Christ. That's why she did it. Here's the question. Are they right when they said she wasted it? Do you see that there at the end of verse 4? Why was this ointment wasted like that? By the way, the ointment of pure nard most likely came from a very rare plant in those days that could only be found in India. Now, they live in Israel, and there was no jet planes back then. So we're talking serious treasure here, folks. Serious family treasure. There's my retirement. 
Now, the point isn't that you go take your retirement and give it to somebody. Now, this is a unique point in redemptive history. Remember, she's unnamed. It's not about her. It's about Jesus. This points to Jesus and his worth. Do you value him like that? I think that's a question it asks us. But let's ask this, the second question. Did she waste it? Did she waste it? As a matter of fact, what do they say to her? They say to her, why didn't you just sell this? That's a huge amount of money. And we could give it to the poor, which is a very righteous thing to do. And Jesus steps in. And he says, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? Verse 6. She has done a beautiful thing for me. For you always have the poor with you and whenever you want and you can do for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. You know what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, I'm God. How's that, Al? Because Jesus isn't saying, don't care for the poor. Jesus cared for the poor. Jesus healed the poor. Jesus commands us to care for the poor. But what Jesus said is there's something greater than the poor here. God's here. God's the only one that can be worshipped and honored that way. What Jesus is doing here is he's confirming for her what he taught the scribe back in chapter 12. Remember that scribe that asked him in chapter 12, what's the greatest commandment? And up on the screen, this is how Jesus answered him. Jesus answered, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and with all your pure nard. Remember that. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than this. Jesus is saying, let's get it right. You can't love your neighbor until God first loves you by his grace sovereignly, and then you love him, and then out of that love you love your neighbor. He's saying, she's getting it right. I'm only going to be here another couple of days. See, remember he'd been telling his disciples that? All the way since back at chapter 8? Three times he said, I'm going to Jerusalem. They're going to betray me. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to rise again from the dead. How did the disciples respond to that? Do you remember? Now they were in the huddle going, no, 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 not that play. Can I argue with you from that place? No, no, that person. They're just arguing in the huddle. (laughs) And Jesus says, no, it's going to happen. This woman gets in the huddle and says, yes, sir, it is going to happen. She didn't see it like we see it. But let me tell you something right now. She saw it a whole lot clearer than the disciples did. How many times has he told them that? No one's commemorated his death. This woman came to anoint him for burial. She's receiving the will of God. And he's saying it's right because I am God. Anyone other than God, that would be an arrogant statement that he made. He goes, you're always going to have the poor with you, but I, I won't be here long. She's doing a good thing. She's doing a good thing. She's doing the right thing. Did she waste it? Did she waste that precious, pure nard? The answer is this. No. 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 Because that woman understood who Jesus is and by faith she worshipped Jesus and that was the worship and that was the point that in that moment that he is worth it and here's the deal, church. No life poured out in faith for Jesus Christ is ever wasted. Because listen, that alabaster flask that was broken was worth a lot. And that pure nard ointment inside was worth even more. But both of them pale in comparison with the worth of the Son of God whose body was 
broken on that cross and whose blood was poured out for our salvation. That's the point. That's the point. And that leads us to point two. It was not wasted because it was poured out for the one whose blood would be poured out to cover our sins. Point two, Christ's extravagant love covers us. Christ's extravagant love covers up. Remember, this is Passover. Remember, this is Independence Day. Remember, they're celebrating the slaughter of the Passover lamb whose blood would then cover them so that the wrath of God would pass over them. And and though this woman did not understand it, as I said earlier, like we do, she definitely understood it better than the disciples. She knew Jesus had to die. And it was that faith that God wants us to see, that Christ's love, his extravagant love covers us. Covers us. Covers us. She anointed his body for burial. In just a few short days, Jesus would fulfill the prophecy that he gave in Mark chapter 10, 45. He said, for the son of man, speaking of himself, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. His blood being poured out would ransom them. Even as the Passover lamb at the Exodus account covered the sins of Israel, and caused God's wrath to pass over them. But it had to be celebrated year after year for 1,400 years. Now the Passover lamb, the greater Passover lamb, the fulfillment of that type in the Old Testament for 400 years has come. And he's walking through the cities and she's anointing him for burial because his blood poured out once and for all on that cross will not only cover our sins, yes, amen, but it will take the wrath of God That death angel going through the streets of Egypt is nothing compared to the wrath of God against unrighteousness. And Jesus' body and blood would take the wrath. It would cover our sins. This is the extravagant love of Christ. Christ's extravagant love isn't just costly, but it covers our sins and it takes the wrath of God. The Apostle John describes it this way. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Okay, what's a propitiation, Al? Here's a propitiation. If, if I do something to anger you, let's say I owe you millions of dollars and you're a person that can harm me and you, want, you have now evil intent against me, not evil intent, but you want to harm me. To propitiate is for someone to come and, first of all, to pay that debt, to take that thing away that caused your righteous wrath against me. And then to give something in its place that would actually cause you to have favor on me. So I now, I owed you 10 million, I've paid you 10 million, and do I have a deal for you? It's a cell phone deal. It's going to make you 10 billion. So now, one moment you were mad at me, ready to kill me, literally. The next moment you're going, man, you're my best buddy. Come on in. Let's sign this contract right here. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. It's called the great exchange. Jesus propitiated the wrath of God. That is to say, he took the wrath that we deserve. He fulfilled the punishment that we deserve because of our sins. And then, because of his righteous acts, all of his righteousness are now accrued to us. They become ours. And now we have favor with God. We no longer get God's wrath, but we get God's favor, his blessing. That's what Jesus did. 
We are covered with the cloak of Christ's righteousness, experiencing God's favor instead of his wrath. Paul stated it this way in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 through 7. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, but God. 1,400 years of preaching this message. But God, the Passover lamb. I'm giving you a picture. I'm going to show you this. But God, at the right time, at the appropriate time, sent the lamb of God. Verse 4. Rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. This is Christ's extravagant love. Christ's costly love. Christ's extravagant love that covers. Here's what he's talking about. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable, immeasurable riches, immeasurable riches, Alabaster flask, break it. Years worth of salary, give it. He paid a debt I could never pay. He gave me the riches of heaven. What's this worth in comparison? That's the point here. Do you see that? Is it worth that in your eyes? Do you wake up every single morning and say, thank you that you've given me your grace and you've shown me these immeasurable riches of your grace and kindness in Christ? Do you see Christ's extravagant love covering your sins? And do you thank God? Oh, church, may we be a church that values what is truly valuable. He covers our sin. He takes God's wrath that we deserve and giving us instead his favor. Does the fact that you are no longer a child of wrath, but rather a child of God, receiving his mercy, thrill you? Does it bring you joy each day in the midst of your trials and tribulations? Here's another question. Does the fact that Christ covered your sin enable you to cover other sin? Let me explain. There's no way you can cover other sins like Jesus covered yours. You cannot die for their sins. Your blood does not wash their sins away. But there's this idea in the Bible about love covering a multitude of sins. That means that when I relate to people, do I relate to them by thinking the best of them? Do I speak highly of them where I can? Do I look for grace in their lives? Or do I expose them, critical of them, perhaps even sinfully slander them, gossip against them or judge them and even more importantly here do i forgive others as christ forgave me christ's extravagant love was costly do i see the cost do i value it do i value the one who died for me and what that means and christ's love extravagant love covers it covers my sin do i forgive as i've been forgiven i'm not talking about excusing sin i'm not talking about that at all i'm talking about a heart attitude heart attitude see this is gospel living this is gospel truth we never ever ever move on from the gospel the gospel moves us on to make disciples this is where the gospel changes us from angry bitter slanderous proud self-righteous people that always have an opinion and are willing to argue in the huddle with everybody to include god to people that are humble and submissive and caring and loving and are willing to say you know what let's go let's go let's be forgiving because we've been forgiven Let's cover 
appropriately because our sin has been covered. Christ's love was poured out on us, not that we might hoard it up as a feel-good thought, but declared as the transforming power of God, the very gospel we declare and demonstrate in our love for God and for one another. You see, God's Christ's costly, extravagant love not only covers us, dear friends, but point three, it commissions us. It commissions us. Look at verse nine. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she, and again, he still doesn't name her. If it is Mary, I mean, he knows Mary. Right? I mean, Mary's the one that, that did the right thing and was at his feet when he came to, to raise Lazarus from the dead. He cried with them. He cried over Lazarus. He doesn't name her because it's not about her, it's about him. Will be proclaimed in the whole world. What she has done will be told in memory of her. Church, Christ inducted this unnamed woman into heaven's hall of fame right there at that point. Because he said that every time the gospel is proclaimed, like today, September the 6th, 2015 in Miami Lakes, we will remember her. Not her, but what she did and what it spoke of Christ. You see, by faith, she seemed to be the first one to recognize, and not fully, And she wouldn't until after the resurrection, until after the Spirit was given. But she seemed to be one of the first ones here in the text, certainly more so than the disciples, that God's grace cannot be separated from suffering. That glory comes through suffering. Jesus kept trying to tell them that. They kept trying to rebuke him. No, no, you're Messiah. We're going to take over, man. You're not going to die. You're going to rule. This temple's not going to be destroyed. Look how magnificent it is. It's gone. 37 years, it's going to be gone. Suffering comes before glory. She seemed to get that. That's why she anointed him, his body for death. Listen, here's the point. Well, I don't know how much she got it or not, but here's the point. We certainly should get it. That one cannot separate the gospel from Jesus' suffering, from his passion. That the mystery of the gospel is revealed in the death of Jesus on the cross. The mystery of the gospel is revealed in the death of Jesus on the cross. Her extravagant love pointed to his extravagant love. His extravagant, costly love that covers and commissions us to go out and proclaim him to the world. Now to proclaim him to the world, we first must experience that love daily. We must preach the gospel to ourselves daily. But then, the gospel, Jesus Christ, and more specifically, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, whom He has sent, now, through this gospel, which is the power of God for salvation, He, the Spirit, empowers us. The Spirit moves us out to proclaim Christ's suffering, His death, His resurrection, and His ascension, calling all men and women to repent and believe that they might pour out their lives for the one who poured out His life to cover their sins. Give them favor with God and commission them. Here's, I think, the main point of the text. Christ's extravagant love covers and commissions us at his great cost. Christ's extravagant love covers and commissions us at his great cost. Here's the appeal, I believe, from the text for us. May we know Christ's extravagant love 
poured out for us at the cross, the love that covers our sins at his great cost and commissions us with his great power to declare and demonstrate his extravagant love to the world through his glorious gospel. Amen. Let us pray. Worship team, please join me. Lord, I so thank you for your extravagant love. Lord, I pray that we as a church would be reminded this morning of that extravagant love. It seems like everything on this earth mitigates against remembering, believing, applying that extravagant love. From the propensity we all have to works righteousness, to proving ourselves over and over with you, to smuggling in our own righteousness into yours, which is ludicrous, but we buy that lie often. To the pressures of others, actions or inactions toward us, even their sins. To the pressures of just surviving and making it. Lord, there's much that would distract. Even as this morning, there seems in my mind to have been much to distract. But I am so glad that in the midst of a distracted people, you come with a clear voice. And I pray that we would hear it. And I pray that we would confess together this morning as we sing, only Jesus, only Jesus. May that, Lord, be our profession, confession, and our prayers. Corey said, we're your children. I'm crying out to you, Lord. <laughs> I need your help. And I know it's only in Jesus. Pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing only Jesus.